0: Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller and I've been in Oxford recently to meet military historian Roderick Bailey. Roderick's interest in the wartime exploits of the Special Operations Executive, SOE, dates back many years and this month sees a publication of his official history of SOE operations in fascist Italy, entitled Target Italy. If the notion of an official history makes you think of something rather dutiful and worthy, you would be quite wrong. This book is outstandingly pacey and readable, populated by a cast of extraordinary characters on both sides. It describes exploits which are often so daring, dangerous, and sometimes foolhardy that they would be dismissed as implausible in fiction. If you're familiar with SOE operations in France and the Low Countries, then Roderick's account of the very different circumstances inside Mussolini's Italy will be eye-opening. When the SOE was set up in the summer of 1940 to encourage sabotage, resistance and subversion within enemy territory, it found itself particularly ill-equipped to penetrate Italy. One of its operatives commented at the time, If the whole resources of the British Empire have failed to obtain any confidential information from Italy in the past 18 years, then God help us. Yet that was very much how it seemed to the men tasked with recruiting agents and sending them on covert missions. They also significantly underestimated the counter-espionage skills of their enemy, as you'll hear. None of which, of course, detracts from the bravery of the men who were sent into enemy territory by SOE, whose exploits Roderick vividly describes. I began by asking him to tell me about how his own interest in SOE began. My interest
1: in Special Forces and SOE in particular goes back quite a distance. So my grandfather was actually an SOE officer. So he was parachuted into the Balkans during the Second World War, specifically into Albania. And then I ended up doing a PhD on Albanian SOE operations. That was in the late 90s and early early 2000s. And that was using documents which had just been declassified. So I did a PhD on SOE in the Balkans. And that was really, that that had me, me hooked really, I suppose. And I was becoming familiar with the records and the archives. And then I moved on to the Imperial War Museum as a a sort of SOE expert as a consultant to them and my job there for a few years was to acquire more SOE material for their holdings so that deepened my interest and um, awareness of SOE history and I did a few other bits and pieces I was in the army for a bit in the reserves I went to Afghanistan and I worked a little bit of work for the foreign office occasionally monitoring elections but I, I maintained my sort of academic side and a few years ago, I was commissioned to do, this, to do this book based on the fact that I'd had a track record in serious SOE writing and studies.
0: Do you think having had a spell in the army yourself, does that give you some kind of insight into military ways of thinking and, and operating? Is that, is that valuable in any sort of sense, in, yeah. in, in terms of writing?
1: Yeah, definitely. definitely the, the scales fall away from your eyes quite a lot. I mean, it, to my, my experience, it's very limited, but it did have the advantage of going to a, to a war zone. And I found that everything's much more confusing. There's much more responsibility on, on minor. There can be a lot of responsibility on small players. Mistakes are made. It's, not, it's very rarely, at least in my experience, it's, it's not really a slick, oiled machine. The, the military is, is something that pushes forward by the energy and skills of individuals. And if those are lacking in some, some way, then, then you, can, you can come across all sorts of issues and problems. No, the army was particularly was a, was a, was a very useful experience for me. I, I did it to give myself, you know, that to soak myself in the military side of things. I was already a military historian by that stage, but I really wanted to, yeah, give myself some credibility as well, but really just try to learn learn from the experience. I thought it was something that I'd always wanted to do. I was supposed to go to Sandhurst a long time ago, but chose to do the PhD instead. But it had always been something that had been nagging away at me that I hadn't done it. So, yeah, I joined, joined the reserves and then volunteered to go out.
0: I suppose you realise the role that things like accidents, you know, both good and bad ones, play, and also improvisation, as opposed to or, or, or in tandem with planning and, and strategy.
1: That's true as well. It's predicting things, it's very, very hard. On a battlefield, it's, yeah, that things are fast changing. So, actually, as this book progressed, I had more understanding, I think, and more sympathy, I think, for those who were planning these operations than perhaps I might have had. Might have done. It can be very easy to look at somebody else's decision making from a, a position of safety, I and mean, particularly when you've got lots more information these days. But looking at somebody trying to make decisions, particularly to do with intelligence work, trying to make and uh, intelligence operations and special forces operations, trying to make decisions to do with that based on limited information is extremely difficult, and problems and errors are almost I- inevitable.
0: And you say early on in the book that quite a lot of SOE histories have been written, really just from the from the British side, the British documentation, but you made a a conscious decision to look at the Italian sources as well. And that must have revealed quite a different picture.
1: If you just base it on SOE records and British records, you're only telling half, half the story. And I think that's come through as a criticism of of some of the other earlier SOE histories. To be fair to them, it was very difficult to, to gain access to those materials. And in some cases, the authors who were commissioned didn't have the language skills. But with this one, yes, I tried to make a conscious effort to, to build into it Italian records and also American records. The Americans come in from time to time and the FBI records are very interesting. And yes, I mean, it was a, it was a revelation really to see the Italian side, which even the British had not probably Looked at even during the war or even or afterwards. So this is the first time really that this Italian viewpoint has has come to the fore, and and details of what the Italians are up to. The, the the outstanding picture that one gets is how, in particular, is how efficient the Italian counterespionage setup was, which is something that you don't see written about anywhere really. I found that extraordinary. The way that the Italians were far more. Well, oh, they they were just ex- extremely experienced, skilled. The thing is, you see, they'd had 20 years of, of suppressing internal opposition and internal subversion and anybody who was was uh, hostile to Mussolini's regime. So they had all this experience of running Asian provocateurs and running people to ground and imprisoning people and running informers and playing games with other people, other, other intelligence agencies and, and underground organizations. So they had all this experience. And the British really are just amateurish by, by comparison.
0: Hugh Seaton Watson, who, who went on to be a, a historian after the war, um, but was working in Cairo for SOE, says around 1940 perhaps you know what on earth were the British intelligence services doing between 1922 and 1940 because because really the cupboard is bare in terms of intelligence and you know contacts on the ground so I mean what what was what what was British intelligence thinking in in the years the pre-war years as far as you know what what Italy would
1: do what Italy would come and what what the attitude um to it should be yeah that's right so if, if, I described the British there just as amateurish, but to uh, to really to understand which is true, but to understand that to get a full gra- gather a, a impression of why that's the case, you have to look back at the previous twenty years, and it is out of the it is out of the hands of the individual intelligence officers. They're trying to do the best they can in 1940 with the resources they have to hand and the experience they have to hand, and it's not much because for twenty years the British hadn't been very switched on to active operations against against anyone really towards the late nineteen thirty that begins late 30s that begins to change But even then Italy is very much off the agenda because the British don't want to offend Mussolini They don't want to run operations. They don't want to be aggressively gathering information on Italy because they're afraid that Mussolini will and the Italians will come to hear of it and will and will react badly and they will with all sorts of repercussions on the international front and the British would, the Britain will suffer There was a hope that they could keep Italy out of the war by being nice to them and not being aggressively seeking to to undermine them. So you find, yes, you, so you find MI6. MI6 really is the organisation that is chiefly tasked with, the secret organisation is chiefly tasked in the 30s with working in enemy countries. And it's a very small setup. It's very elementary intelligence gathering. And the effects when the war comes around are, are quite significant And that the British really are starting from scratch.
0: I mean, there's a famous remark by Churchill. When SOE set up, set Europe ablaze, but you say in the book, they weren't really in a position to set anything ablaze. Really, you know, they didn't have the, they didn't have the materials.
1: Yeah, that quote from Churchill is always is rolled out, rolled out a lot. But really, not just Italy, everywhere, SOE started. It was very small, very small number of people, very few resources. It wasn't very well liked in Whitehall. It had plenty of enemies who were jealous of it, of its resources and suspicious too, because they didn't think this new upstart secret organization, um, they feared that it might not be very easy to handle and, and work with. MI6 are a good example. They felt in many ways it was intruding on their ground. Uh, and they were fearful that SOE with all its loud explosions and blowing up, its habit of blowing up things, would upset their rather quieter, MI6's role, which is to quietly gather intelligence. And you can't really do the two things, two same same thing, really. So If you have one man watching a bridge to see how much, Traffic, enemy traffic is passing over it, and then someone blows it up from another organisation. It can be, it can be kind of hard.
0: So, when a SOE was set up, what was its intended mission? You know, beyond set Europe ablaze, and as far as Italy was concerned, what was what was the objective?
1: SOE was set up to encourage resistance and carry out sabotage and subversion, encourage it, carry it out in occupied territory and enemy-controlled territory and enemy-influenced territory. Now, as far as Italy was concerned. It was the same um, directive, if you like, the same task, really, to try to encourage resistance within Italy, to try to cause problems for the Italians, the fascists. After Italy came into the war in the summer of 1940, it was to carry out sabotage and, and try to contact local groups of resistors. But it was extremely, extremely difficult, with partly because the resources of SOE were so slim, and partly because the Italians were very hard to contact. But the Italians had had a lot of experience in crushing internal opposition which left soe with very few contacts in Italy to to get in touch with there are other factors too in that the Italian population was was uh, this is very important it was an enemy pop it was an enemy country not an enemy controlled one the situation inside an enemy an enemy country is, is very different than enemy controlled one the fascists however unpleasant they were and how unpopular they were in certain quarters and they were unpopular in, in large large sections of society in, in Italy nevertheless had been voted in. And they were being attacked by outside people and outside countries. And to begin with, it was a relatively easy task to keep the population on side with propaganda and uh, and the reality of the war, and particularly also the, the, the tide of the war as well, which is important to keep in mind. So the first two years of the war looked like Italy would win. So if you're an Italian anti-fascist, what you know what is in it for you if you take that risk to sacrifice your life and, and come out and fight for the British when really it doesn't look as if the British will will, will win? What do you do? Do you... Do you do you wait for better times and just bide your time? That's perhaps the, the the wiser the wiser course.
0: What about the large expatriate Italian population in the UK? Many of whom were interned at the start of the war. Presumably, a lot of them would have been anti-fascists.
1: Well, there's a great deal of hope at the beginning of the at the beginning of the war, nineteen forty, when Italy came into the war, that uh, a great deal of hope in, on the British government side and in the SOE side that they would exactly they would find plenty of volunteers amongst the Italians who were living, I think there were 18,000 Italians living in the UK uh, in the summer of 1940. And SOE did try to tap tap these, but they found it disappointing. It is hard to tie down exactly the reasons. Certainly, SOE realized that the most politically minded Italian anti-fascists, the exiles, the emigres, they hadn't really been welcomed to Britain in, before 1940. They'd had a home in France, in particular Paris was very much a gathering point, but even there, they weren't that popular. And once Paris had fallen, in 1940, these emigres, these anti-fascists, the, the ones with skills and experience have found the anti-fascist struggle inside Italy because they've been forced to flee. They disperse and some of them come to, to, to London, but not, not really many at all. Uh, most of them end up in North Africa, just waiting for boats in Casablanca and places like that, waiting in Lisbon to trying to, to, to escape from, from Europe. And some of them end up in Mexico, some of them end up in New York. But in the UK, really, you're looking at people who've been here for quite a while, there is quite a large Jewish contingent in in the UK as well. These are Italian Jews who'd left Italy in the late 30s in response to the, the anti-Semitic legislation which the Italians introduced in the late 30s. And actually, that, so you do see some, so we get some volunteers, and they tend to be from this, from these groups. They tend to be from Jewish Italians, uh, anti-fascist refugees really who'd, who'd come here. Uh, and there are a smattering of Italians too who'd, who'd been here before, but many of them had been here so long for 10, 20 years that um, really, their connection with Italy was quite slim, and, and so it showed in some cases when Italy, when SOE did recruit them and send them back, they really weren't weren't so in touch with their country as you might you might have expected, and certainly SOE expected.
0: Some of them clearly were very patriotic and, and deeply anti-fascist, and some of them seemed just really opportunistic. I mean, even fantasists. Some, maybe some of the ones who didn't um, make it all the way, but they're they're, they're quite a,
1: an interesting collection of human types, I think. The Italians are actually recruited. Yeah, they're a very fascinating group. They've all got these different motivations, and they do fall into different all sorts of categories. Really, yes, you're right. You have some really die-hard, hard-bitten anti-fascists who are experienced and committed to the cause. You've got communists as well, socialists, but you do have a smattering of adventures. And I think this is really this is just the attraction of secret operations. There is certain people who are, are special operations are attracted to this for the for the uh, for the excitement. That's part of it. It's for some, some, some do it because they there's there's money to be made and it's interesting. And it's 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 you know be, being in an internment camp, or being in the army generally can be quite boring. So people do and frustrating. So people do do volunteer from from that for that reason too. They just want a change of scenery, and others they generally feel say pro pro British. There's that too. I mean the very first volunteer that SOE sent back to Fortunato Piki, who went back to Italy in 1941. And he just comes across as somebody who's not particularly ideologically driven, but had a passionate sort of love, really, for for England, and seems to have been that seems to have motivated him all along, and ultimately led to his death.
0: Fortunate by name, but not fortunate, really, when he when he got to Italy. I and mean, say say a little bit about his um about his mission.
1: Yeah, of course, uh, I was able to tell his story looking at uh, Italian and British declassified records. Remarkably, really, he was a, a, a former waiter at the Savoy Hotel. Uh, he'd worked on the White Star Line between London and, and New York. He'd worked at uh, the Ritz, I think, as well. So he'd, But but primarily he was at the Savoy. He spent a good few years at the Savoy Hotel. And I think he was head of head of banqueting at the end, uh, head waiter in banqueting at the end. And then he lost his job uh, in 1940, 1939, I think, with the downsize, and then found work scratching around in other hotels and then ended up being interned in 1940 on the Isle of Man, as many Italians were. And then he volunteered SOE came looking around for volunteers. He volunteered. And it was all very quick then. So he was recruited and trained and rushed out, really, rushed out on an operation. He was attached to a commando unit as, a, as an interpreter. And SOE attached him. He, they were asked to provide him. They attached him to a group of commandos who parachuted into southern Italy. It was the first parachute drop in British military history. And uh, it didn't. It, they succeeded in attacking the target, which was an aqueduct. But very soon afterwards, they were all rounded up. And he, tragically, just does not seem to have really weighed the, the risks before going. There's one account of him effectively feeling that, that he discussed with a British officer that he thought that he could, in an interrogation, when he was captured in interrogation, he thought that he could get away by just being honest with the Italian interrogators, saying that nobody, nobody likes fascism and surely they'll understand what he was doing. But he misunderstood really and misjudged, misjudged badly the situation he was in. And uh, very, very quickly this Italian machinery went into action and ran to ground all sorts of witnesses and evidence to prove that he was in fact still Italian. And then once that fact was established that he was effectively a traitor, his his fate was pretty much sealed and he was executed.
0: What propaganda value was made of him on, on both sides?
1: He's an interesting chap, as far as his symbol is the symbolism of his death, really, is concerned. Because he was he was the first, and
0: he, he he's subsequently been sort of held up as the first martyr to anti-fascism. I think that's, that's or, correct. Or,
1: or, yes, he has. He was so there was propaganda later on aimed at Italy, which spoke of him as the the, the first. Was um, the second Risorgimento? That's it? exactly it yes. So the first martyr really to the second oh. Risorgimento, and th- that was the story that got back to his family too. That that's how they they saw him, but. In the UK here, he was held up as um, an Italian who was sacrificing his life for the British, which is exactly what he was he was doing. And uh, he was uh, an Italian who lived here for 20 years, who felt passionately about, about the country and um, was prepared to risk and lay down his life. Whether the reality of what he was doing ever hit, ever hit home was another matter, but certainly that's what happened, that he was prepared to take that risk and died as a result. And the, the press did print the story about it and they printed a lot of details about his story and there was a an obituary in the times even for this young well not so young he was 43 but this quiet gentle italian really who hadn't achieved much in his life until that stage so the symbolic uh, nature of his death was very significant i think <sighs> No,
0: Mussolini himself, there there have been all sorts of myths and rumours around SOE's designs upon an assassination attempt. And your book is fascinating because it sort of dispels one myth, but it actually uncovers... Uh, A story which is which is all you know as as fascinating and and happened a couple of years before his his death in 45 so tell me tell me what you tell me what you uncovered there
1: there's always been a theory that the British had bumped off Mussolini in 1945 Uh, really there's no evidence for that as as even no hard evidence as even the people who put forward that theory will will admit that it's all circumstantial none of the research that I did reinforced in any way that theory I'm, I'm as convinced now as I was before, I, uh, I'm absolutely convinced in the material I've looked at that there was no such, there's, no, there's nothing to that theory that the, that the British had any involvement in Mussolini's death in 45. So I was I was quite a, I was quite surprised to suddenly turn up a plot from 1942 where they did actually try to kill him. Uh, at least they, they had this plan to, to kill him. that was extraordinary. It's, it seeped out from various documents and I tried to follow it up in Sicily too. So I did go to Sicily to try to follow up the proposed assassin. So effectively in a nutshell, the British had been recruiting Recruiting, trying to recruit Italians from POW camps and internment camps in the Middle East and in Africa, because a lot of Italians have been captured or fallen into the British hands in the Middle East and Africa from Italy's old empire. And it's one of these Italians who came up with this idea. He said, "Well, why don't I have a go? Send me back to Italy, and I'll have a crack at killing killing Mussolini." And the documents are thin, but they they nevertheless they provide a skeleton of the plan, and they show that SOE liked the idea that it was bounced around in in London uh, a little bit. The green light was even given in in Cairo, uh, which was where he was going to be dispatched from. So remarkably, this plot was actually given the green light to go to go ahead. And, and this young Italian, uh, Giovanni giunta uh, was his name. He was even unleashed from his and, and was put into action. So in fact, his plan began. However, by that stage, the target had changed. So. SOE had had to think and decided that Mussolini actually was perhaps, perhaps not the best target to go for.
0: And they, they, they thought at one stage of poison, and that seems remarkable. They would think that anyone could get close enough to poison Il Duce.
1: Well, yes, it is extraordinary. And this is another thing. I mean, if you look at the experiences of Italian anti-fascists in the 30s and 20, 20s and 30s, they'd consider all these things, and they'd, they'd all come to the conclusion that it was, well, many of them had come to the conclusion that it was impossible, really, to get anywhere near him. But here you have SOE just ruminating on the possibilities of, of poisoning him, or perhaps having a go at shooting him when he was speaking in public, perhaps, or killing him anyway in some form. The the documents are vague on, on whatever it is. Certainly it was there was some idea that they'd have a go at him when he was in public and yeah, and poison his food. But ultimately there wasn't much they could do other than just unleash this young Italian on his own. They they weren't able to give him any equipment except some, some diamonds to pay his way, and that was it. So they send him off. And the idea was to disguise him as an Italian prisoner, put him in a PAW camp with real Italian prisoners. And the idea this this camp would be in Palestine. And the idea was that he would somehow escape from the camp, make his way to Turkey, be repatriated from there by the Italian authorities, and be sent back to Italy. And once he was back in Italy, so the plan so the plan went, he would then plan everything himself and have a go himself. So it's all pretty desperate stuff. And Esso, I think, realised this. But I think it's, it is a, it's a very good illustration how desperate this planning was that they were quite happy just to, to give that a go and think, well, that's fine. If he's willing to go, if he's willing to do this, then yeah, that's fine. Crack on and he can just go and do this. That's, let's see what see what happens.
0: Yeah, it it, it seems astonishing that if someone plausible turned up with a halfway plausible plan, they they might get a green light.
1: It's exactly that. It's a very good illustration, I think, of how, how they were considering all sorts of plans, in 1942, in particular, in in, in in that at that time where things were pretty desperate, this was before El Alamein, and they were looking for any way really of trying to penetrate Italy, try and do something. So there's a degree of yeah, certainly a degree of desperation to it all.
0: I have to confess, I didn't know very much about. What went on in Switzerland during the war And it's very clear from your book That it was a it was seething with spies With Swiss spies and Italian spies and German spies And the middle of this is this Scotsman Who's trying to establish SOE operations in Italy From, from over the border tell me, tell me a little bit about, about him and, and what his setup was like
1: John McCaffrey was, yes, a Scotsman in his 30s He was, uh, had been a journalist before the war in Italy spoke spoke Italian He'd also been an English teacher too. And he'd been recruited by to, by SOE quite early. And then he'd been sent out to Switzerland to to run their setup there. Now he got, it was extremely difficult for him. and This is important to stress. He was understandably out of his depth in certain areas. He was swamped with work. It wasn't just Italy, it was was his, his response. He was the only SOE officer there for a long time. And his responsibilities were all of the surrounding countries. So he was responsible for SUV operations from Switzerland into the Greater Reich, so that's Germany and Austria, into France, uh, and into Italy too. And Italy was always one that he was was close to his heart. But there he had to cope with, he was inexperienced in this work. He, he learned as he went along with his job. But he was faced with, as you say, he was working in a country thick with enemy spies. And in many cases, these Intelligence, counterintelligence people, particularly the Italians, knew very well what they were doing. If you look at the Italian mm. documents, they'd, they'd effectively, they'd set up a ruse to deceive the British long, long before McCaffrey had even arrived. And it was a trap that was in place and he, and he walked straight into it
0: the book makes clear it was very difficult even to get in and out of Switzerland. I mean, everything, you know, if we used to think about SOE operations in France, say, well, you know, you're over the channel and then, you know, you, you know it's dangerous. But but actually, physically, to get in and, and, in and out of Switzerland and, and therefore Italy was a, was a major logistical um, operation, wasn't
1: it? Extremely so. It was very difficult to get anybody into any part of Italy. So they had a lot of, uh, SOE had a lot of problem trying to get people in by parachute or by submarine. And Switzerland, of course, shares a common border with Italy. However, that was always patrolled by, on both sides of the border, by Italians and by Swiss on the other side. It was very, very hard to penetrate it. So SOE tried to make use of smugglers, really. And people who'd, who'd had experience of of running illicit stores across across the border, but of course that opens up all sorts of problems. How do you trust? How do you trust smugglers? How can you rely rely upon them?
0: Do you have particular favourites among the the either the British or the Italian characters whom you wrote about? You know that you particularly admire for their ingenuity or or their bravery or their tenacity.
1: You can admire people from there for their skills on the Italian side, even though they're working for a fascist government. There's a chap called Luca Astoria who was running. Italian counterintelligence operations against the British. He'd had years of experience. And if you read reports by him later, he seemed quite a cool customer, really. He knew what he was doing. Was, qu- was quite, quite prepared to, do, to take the most extraordinary steps, really, but do to do so coolly in, 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 in steps to try to bluff and, and, and confuse the British. And it all, and it all works. On the, on the SOE side, it's very hard not to mar all the individuals who they send in. There are certain individuals who go in well aware of what the risks are going to be, and I think those are perhaps the most the most impressive, who are aware of um, what the dangers are, who know that they are risking death, and nevertheless do, do go in and behave and do their best, and do their best. There's a young Hungarian called Gabor Adler who was put ashore in Sardinia. He spoke Italian from being living in Italy as a boy, and he was captured. From looking at Italian records, uh, you can trace his his fate, really. He, he is sucked into the Italian prison system, if you like. He does his best to try to alert SOE that he's been captured. And then he just, he he, he disappears, really. And it takes a long time for SOE to discover his, his real fate.
0: We talked earlier about how, at its inception, really, there wasn't a lot to go on because of what had happened in the preceding two decades. But accepting that, do you think SOE made the best of a, of a very difficult job, by and large, in, in its Italian operations?
1: It's important to say it as a learning experience, I think. It was really trial and error. And if you look back at the lack of resources they had, the lack of knowledge and expertise that they had in place at the beginning, it's inevitable that the, the British had to find their way imperfectly, let's say. They made mistakes as well, as I think they, they admitted at the time. They had slim resources all the way through. It's well, From a standpoint now, it's difficult to be not to be critical of some of the decisions that were made. They were... Some agents were put ashore, Italian agents were put ashore in Italy in, in conditions of such extreme danger that you do wonder whether there was something, whether, whether adequate consideration was given to men's lives, let's, let's say.
0: Do you think the, the British underestimated the Italians as an enemy? They didn't, they didn't realise just how, how clever and adroit they were at using and gathering counterintelligence.
1: I think that's exactly right. I think it's still done as well. I think if that the Italian. Italian military record, wartime record, is is still, is, as I'm sure many people people know, is still mocked and ridiculed, I think, for not being efficient. And on some battlefields, that's true. On some battlefields, it wasn't in North Africa. There are certain Italian units who fought extremely well. And of course, you had Italian partisans fighting later in northern Italy against the Germans, and they were extremely courageous and very effective in many cases. During the war, however, I think the, Ita- the British made a terrible mistake in, in underestimating the skills and experience and expertise of italian counter-espionage in particular they were extremely efficient at what they were doing there's no comparison really between what the british were trying to do and what the italians were doing
0: how are those men seen today in italy those those italians who worked for soe
1: the fate of italians who worked before worked for soe before italy changed sides this is when italy was still hostile it is still a, a for some time after the war. It was it was it was a ticklish subject because of course these, these were men who volunteered to fight against their own country and their own countrymen, and it's still something in some cases where which it is a little bit hard to get to grips with because they were seen as traitors, and today it's still not it's not quite as clear cut. It is certainly still a grey area. I think certainly partisans after the armistice, after Italy changed hands, they were hundred percent. Italians, pro-Italians. There was no question about them whatsoever. But um, the agents that SOE sent out were not fighting just Germany, they were fighting their own country. So they are seen, they, and I think they, they must be seen as a little bit, little bit different there.
0: Roderick Bailey. Target Italy is out now in hardback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast but I'll be back soon with another program. You can make sure you never miss the program by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can find a full podcast archive on SoundCloud. Search for Faber Books SoundCloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.